The oldest question in the world is found in the oldest book, which many Bible scholars believe to be the book of Job. In chapter 25 and verse 4, we read, How can a man be righteous before God? That, my friends, is the most important question anybody could ask. It's a real problem. The New Testament tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not the unrighteous shall not enter the kingdom of God. And it also tells us there's none righteous, not one. There are two problems. First, what we've made of ourselves. During the war years in one place in this country, they had a big notice up by a road saying, Choose your rut well. You'll be in it for the next 20 miles. And the trouble with most of us is we've gotten into habits that are ruts and that don't do us or anybody else any good. We've made a mess of life in many ways, all of us. The way we think, the way we act, the way we eat, the way we drink, the way we spend, the way we love. It's so easy to do the wrong thing. And most of us have done a good deal of that. William James, a psychologist, he had this to say on one occasion. The hell to be endured hereafter, of which theology tells, is no worse than the hell we make for ourselves in this world by habitually fashioning our characters in the wrong way. Could the young but realise how soon they'll become mere walking bundles of habits, they would give more heed to their conduct while in the plastic state. We are spinning our own fates good or evil, and never to be undone. Every smallest stroke of virtue or of vice leaves its never-so-little scar. The drunken Rip Van Winkle in Jefferson's play excuses himself for every fresh dereliction by saying, I won't count this time. Well, he may not count it, and a kind heaven may not count it, but it's being counted nonetheless. Down among his nerve cells and fibres, the molecules are counting it, registering and storing it up to be used against him when the next temptation comes. Nothing we ever do is, in strict scientific literalness, wiped out. Of course, this has its good side as well as its bad one. As we become permanent drunkards by so many separate drinks, so we become saints in the moral and authorities and experts in the practical, and scientific spheres by so many separate acts and hours of work. That's from James's Principles of Psychology, Volume 1. It's true, my friends, the first problem is what we've made of ourselves. How can we be right before God when we've all made a mess of life, to some degree or another? We only have to look at the law of God to see what a mess we've made. That law that demands of us a perfect love to God and a perfect love to our neighbour, that law that demands a perfect hierarchy of values, giving God his right place, the family next, other people next, and things last. We've usually reversed it. We've been such fools. We've put things first and God last. The folks who spend their days in buying cars and clothes and rings don't seem to know that empty lives are just as empty filled with things. 
we've been fools. And we try and shrug it off because the conscience is like the police. Conscience can be bribed or stifled or drugged or eluded, but not without cost. Because as long as a person lives under the shadow of guilt, he hates himself. And not until he begins to accept and acknowledge guilt is there a measure of release. We try all sorts of psychological stratagems like projection and rationalisation and the like. Literature's full of it. Dickens told of Mr Micawber in one great book. You remember Micawber was always borrowing. And this is what Micawber said on one occasion. To leave this metropolis and my friend Mr Thomas Straddles without acquitting myself of the pecuniary part of this obligation, would weigh upon my mind to an insupportable extent. I have therefore prepared for my friend, Mr Thomas Traddles, and I now hold in my hand a document which accomplishes the desired object. I beg to hand to my friend, Mr Thomas Traddles, my I.O.U. for 41, 10, 11 and a half, and I am happy to recover my moral dignity and to know that I can once more walk erect before my fellow man. Well, that was all right for Mr. Micawber, or was it? I doubt if Mr. Traddles thought it was. You and I are experts at giving IOUs to God, telling him we're going to do better. Our good resolutions are like pie crust. They're just made to be broken. So that's one part of the problem. How can a man be right before God when he's already made himself wrong? The other problem is guilt. We somehow think that time cancels out our sins. It does not, my friends. Our sins are ever in the present with God. And we are guilty. We deserve punishment. When Luther got rid of his guilt, he cried out, Strike, Lord, do whatever you like now, now that my sins are pardoned. C.S. Lewis was right when he said there are two facts about life that everyone must acknowledge before he can really live. One is that there's a real difference between right and wrong. Life depends on that difference, really. Number two, we've all done the wrong and failed in doing the right. None of us are what we should be, what we would be, what we could be. That's why we're guilty. Every one of us is guilty. Just look at that law to which we referred a few moments ago. Look at any part of it. The whole Bible tells us of the law of God. The character of Christ reflects the law of God. Its briefest synopsis was in the Ten Commandments where the principles of heaven were worded to meet fallen intelligences. Take a commandment like Thou shalt not bear false witness. Think what that involves. It's telling us that exact truth should be the law of speech. That commandment condemns all the meaningless phrases and expletives that border on profanity. The commandment condemns the deceptive compliments, the evasions of truth, the flattering phrases, the exaggerations, the misrepresentations in trade that are current in society and in the business world. And this commandment teaches that no one who tries to appear what he is not, or whose words do not convey the real sentiment of his heart, can be called truthful. And if these words of Christ were heeded, they would check the utterance of evil surmising and unkind criticism, for who, in commenting upon the actions and motives of another, can be certain of speaking the exact truth? 
How often pride and passion and personal resentment colour the impression given. Why, a glance or a word, even an intonation of the voice, can be vital with falsehood. Even facts can be so stated as to convey a false impression. My friends, that commandment is far-reaching. Unless we control our words, we're slaves to the devil. We're in subjection to him. He leads us captive, all jangling and unpleasant, impatient, fretful words, an offering presented to hell. It's a costly offering, more costly than any sacrifice we can make to God. It destroys the peace and happiness of families, destroys health, and destroy the hope of eternal life. But my friends, when we look into the depths of that law, which of us is innocent? Not one. Not one. Some may seem to be worse than others, but we're all guilty, my friends. You don't have to kill 50 people to deserve the electric chair. Just one will do. Well, there's our problem. We've made ourselves unrighteous and we're guilty before God. How then shall a man be righteous before God? The oldest question. What's the answer? We must not rationalise, my friends. We're talking about sin and it's a reality. Evil is, as we said last week, live, spelled backwards. You can't live backwards without penalty. Sin is not the same as misfortune. We don't look on misfortune as having arisen from within us. It doesn't rob us of self-respect. And by sin, we don't mean just error or ignorance. Where there's error, we don't blame our ideas only. But perhaps environment, perhaps heredity. We put error down to a mixture of things, but we don't put it down to our will, to our insight, to the ruling energies of our being. We think on error as being our conception of the facts rather than our motives or principles. But my friends, when we are acting in malice and self-indulgence, every act that lacks faith and love, all selfishness, that's sin, pretending we can be independent of our maker, that we have no obligations to other people. We know we're doing wrong. And the simple psychological truth is that the clearest knowledge is often unable to break the fetters of evil habit. The real cause of our troubles, not events from outside, but the inside. Our contrary desires, the clash between I want and I ought. All our desires are so many confessions of discontent. Anyone who sets his affections and hopes for happiness on on anything lower than the stars or less stable than the heavens or less enduring than God is a fool as well as a sinner, but a sinner inevitably. Sin is a selfish failure to let God be God, to trust and obey him. It's idolatry, putting something or some person in, in place of him. It's craziness. It distorts the realities of existence. It throws a monkey wrench into our own lives and lives of others. It'd be better to play with forked lightning or a crocodile than with sin. Sin breaks hearts, blights homes. It's made hell the capital of the universe and it's robbed heaven. Sin is madness. The trouble is we fool ourselves. We're like the rich young ruler who came to the Lord and said, What can I do to have eternal life? 
And Jesus said, if you'll enter into life, keep the commandments. And he answered, oh, I've done that from my youth up. He was a fool as well as a sinner. None of us have kept the commandments, not even for a single day, because the commandments go right down to our thoughts and feelings. You know, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not cover, that's dealing with even desires, my friends. The law demands perfect desires. And so when we ask the oldest question in the world, how shall a man be right with God? That's a conundrum, that's an enigma. Did we not have the book of God to tell us? When Jesus came, he took it for granted that all men were bad. If ye then, being evil, he said, know how to give good gifts to your children. Even good parents are evil, he said. He spoke about himself coming into the world to say that which was lost. Not what could be lost, but what was already lost. All of us like someone that's fallen out of an upper story building. We're crashing down. Unless we take hold of some power going the other way, we will be lost. Well, how shall a man be right before God? May I read to you again a passage of scripture that I have read to you before. Tremendously important. Romans 3, 20 from the Living Bible. Now, do you see it? No one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what the law commands. For the more we know of God's laws, the clearer it becomes we aren't obeying them. His laws serve only to make us see that we are sinners. But now God has shown us a different way to heaven, not by being good enough and trying to keep his laws, but by a new way. They're not new, really, but the scriptures told about it long ago. Now God says he'll accept and acquit us, declare us not guilty, if we trust Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And we can all be saved in the same way, by coming to Christ, no matter who we are or what we've been. Isn't it wonderful that the Bible can call righteousness a gift? Read Romans 5, the last verses. Five times it refers to righteousness as a gift. Because we can't earn it, my friends, it's infinite. It has to do with eternal life. It can't be earned by finite beings, let alone sinful beings. You remember last week we read Romans 10:4 that Christ is the end of the law as a means of righteousness to those that believe. We can't get right with God through the law, my friends. We become right with God through grace. That's the great word of the New Testament, grace. That's the heart of the gospel. God's unmerited love for sinners. Because of grace, which was manifested in Christ on the cross, where he took our place, suffered our penalty. Because of grace, we need not be troubled by the law, my friends. Christ has fulfilled it. We needn't be fearful of God, because God is only angry to those that do not believe in Christ. We need not be anxious about our sins. My friends, they've all been destroyed in the Red Sea of Christ's blood. Like the Egyptians, they're all dead. Legally, that's so. We know there's still a battle for the Christian. He still has failures. But legally, all these sins were crucified when Jesus was. We need not fret over our wild and wicked past. Because the scripture says that Christ saves the uttermost, all that come to God by him. We need not be fearful to approach God. Because God says, whosoever will may come. And him that cometh to me, I'll in no wise cast out. This is his commandment, that we believe on his Son. That's what First John 3.23 tells us. My friends, righteousness is the gift of God, based on the grace of God. 
revealed in the Christ of God long ago. So be sure you understand the difference between law and grace. Let me tell you some contrasts. Let's take the law. The law says, this do and thou shalt live. But grace, grace says, live and thou shalt do. The law says, pay me that thou owest. But grace says, I frankly forgive thee all. The law says, the wages of sin is death. But grace says, the gift of God is eternal life. The law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But grace says, whosoever believeth, though he were dead, yet shall he live. My friends, the law brings condemnation and death, but grace brings justification. That means to be declared righteous. Justification and life. The law says, make you a new heart. But grace says, a new heart will I give you. The law says, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. But grace says, blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sin is covered. The Lord demands, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. But grace says, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. You see, my friends, the law talks about what man should do for God. But grace tells what God has done for man. The law demands holiness, but but grace gives holiness. When the law was given at Sinai, 3,000 people died within a matter of weeks. But when grace was proclaimed at Pentecost after the cross, 3,000 men lived. And of course, we're using men generically. 3,000 men were saved. By one sermon. Today, it takes 3,000 sermons sometimes to save one person. Because law is their centre. But a gospel sermon, my friends, saved 3,000 in one sermon. There is a part of scripture that's called the Acropolis of scripture. Romans 3. that explains why it's possible for God to forgive sinners and give them righteousness. I will read it to you very briefly. From Romans 3 again. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins of the past through the forbearance of God, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Now, my friends, there are three figures used here. It talks about redemption, which is a figure from the slave market. Then it talks about justification, which is a figure from the law court. And it talks about a propitiation or a sacrifice. That's a figure from the temple. All three are saying the same thing. That God is love. That he works through love. But that he has honoured the law by himself paying the penalty for our violations of it so that God can be just as well as a justifier. God couldn't forgive without paying that penalty. A French writer, Gabriel Marcel, has written a book called The Man of God. It tells about a minister and his wife, Claude and Edmé Lemoyne. And early in their married life, Edmé had betrayed her husband. The other man in the story is the real father of their teenage daughter. Claude knew of this affair when it happened. 
He knew his daughter was not really his. Following months of inner agony, he offered his wife complete forgiveness. He thought that after that everything would be all right, but it wasn't. Suddenly the other man appeared. He found that Edmay had never really been able to accept his forgiveness. Her whole life had been coloured by that fact. And so he repeats his forgiveness. But his wife replies, I'm sick of your tolerance. I'm sick of your broad-mindedness. It nauseates me. What do you expect me to do with all this generosity that costs you nothing? Nothing, he reiterates, but I forgave you. But Edmay breaks into sobs. And she bursts out, what was your forgiveness for? What do you want me to do with it? What good is it to me? Now, my friends, that's real life. It may be very difficult to forgive. That's what Claude found out. But it can be much harder to accept forgiveness, particularly when we need it most. That's what Edmay discovered. You see, Claude could forgive his wife, but he could do nothing to erase the guilt that Edmay had created. That was something over which neither he nor she had any control. You see, if God took our sin lightly, my friends, we could not respect him. We couldn't worship a God who took our guilt less seriously than we ourselves take it. And a forgiveness that costs nothing is not forgiveness. That's easygoing toleration and we despise that, both in ourselves and in other people. It wasn't enough for God to speak the message of forgiveness. He had to enact it. And so he made his son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And having thus honoured the law by exacting of our representative the price of our guilt, when we accept what he has done, then legally and justly and righteously God can declare us righteous. It's very important to understand, my friends, that what we call justification means being declared righteous. Being made righteous is a long, tedious affair. But God accepts us before we're made righteous. He accepts us for Christ's sake and declares us righteous the moment we believe. To be justified means to be just as if I'd never sinned. It's an act by God that results in a permanent attitude towards us, a permanent position for us. But justification is not making righteous. The Bible speaks about the publicans justifying God. That doesn't mean they made God righteous. They declared him righteous. Read the same thing in Deuteronomy 25 and and verse 1. Justification means declaring. It's the opposite of condemnation, which means making, making a declaration about sinfulness. So justification is our standing before God, but sanctification is our state. It's, it's essential we know that we're saved by what Christ did for us, not by what he does in us. Both are true. God gives his gifts with both hands. He never gives justification without sanctification. He not only counts us holy, he begins to make us holy the moment we believe. But my friends, justification is 100% righteousness. None of us have 100% sanctification if we mean by that holiness of character. The righteousness of justification is 100%, but it's not inside us. It's imputed, it's reckoned, it's counted, it's put to our account the moment we believe and for as long as we believe. Remember, we don't get justified by what we do, and we can't lose it by what we do. 
That sounds like antinomianism, but it is not. A Christian's heart is broken by the grace of God. He wants to please God. He wants to be obedient. And his failures are not reckoned against him. You're not under law, but under grace, says Scripture. And sin won't have dominion over us for that very reason. See Romans 6.14. So justification is righteousness. It's 100%, but it's not inside us. Sanctification is inside us, the growth of faith and hope and love, but it's not 100%. But when Jesus comes back again, we'll be transformed. Theologians call it glorification. That's both 100% and inside of us. So justification is concerned with acceptance, but sanctification with attainment. Justification has no degrees. It's complete and it's perfect. It's the verdict of the last judgment from the very first moment we accept the love of God. Justification is the foundation of our peace. Regardless of whether we look backwards or outwards or inwards or upwards or onwards, we know from Scripture we're justified from all things from which we could not be justified by the law. Read Acts 13, 39. That peace is immediate as soon as we believe that Christ paid the price of our sins. It releases the soul from anxiety about itself. It frees itself to be anxious about others and to work for them. The heart that's at leisure from itself can set forward working for the salvation of other people. Firm on the rock itself, it can stretch out a loving hand to wrestlers in the troubled sea. Justification, my friends, brings us into the immediate presence of God. It results in the bestowal of the Spirit upon us. Good news indeed. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Like a helpless slave, we've been brought back by his infinite merits. We've been justified. That's a law court expression, declared righteous. A sacrifice has been made for us. That's the temple expression. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so God changes us, my friends, and makes us righteous, as well as declaring us righteous, by the Christ of Calvary. He works through love. Threats couldn't have changed our hearts nor a sight of his own holiness, nor an underlining of our guilt, nor hell, nor the fires of the last days. Only the love of God, the goodness of God, leads to repentance, my friends. There's no other way than that. No wonder he can say to you and me today, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friends, your guilt was buried in the sepulchre of Christ. When he rose, you rose without that burden. When he sat down in heavenly places, you sat down in heavenly places. If you believe on Christ, you are one with him. You are accepted in the beloved. You are perfect in Christ. You are complete in him. And there is no condemnation now or forever to those who trust in the merits of the Son of God.